a really important passage, even though it seems at first reading to be just something you would pass by. Um, Acts chapter 16, verse 1 to 5, is very significant. It introduces us to a young man called Timothy. So the band of missionaries is certainly expanding. Paul and Barnabas have gone their separate ways. Barnabas and Mark have gone to Cyprus, as we saw last time. Paul and Silas have gone to Asia Minor, what we call nowadays Turkey. And another missionary journey, another great adventure is beginning. Paul's second missionary journey. And it will see him going even further than before. The original intention, of course, was just to visit the newly established churches in Asia Minor. Just to see how the new Christians, the converted Jews and the Gentiles are doing in the churches. And to encourage them in the Lord. The local assembly down at Antioch had commended them to the grace of God for this very work. Of course, not of all of our plans go the way we intend them to go. While in Turkey, Paul would experience the so-called Macedonian call. Maybe we'll get a chance to look at that in a couple of weeks' time. A vision of a Greek man crying out for spiritual help. So they crossed the sea over the Bosphorus into Europe, into Greece, well, Macedonia, visiting cities in Macedonia, places like Philippi and and Thessalonica. And then they travel right down through Greece into Achaia, where Paul witnesses for the Lord in places like Athens and Corinth. And now another new name is added to the missionaries. This young man called Timothy. And we first encounter him in Acts chapter 16, verse 1 to 5. And with Timothy's addition, the missionary duo becomes a trio. So I want to look at Timothy for a moment or two this evening. And to see his conversion and his character and his commissioning, his conversion, his character, and his commissioning. Paul has travelled overland from Antioch to a place called Lystra. Now, if you think back a few weeks, uh, we had been looking at Paul's activities in Lystra. It's a place where he had preached on his first missionary journey. And even though that's only a few weeks for us, it was I think something around five years between Paul's first visit to Lystra and his second. And if you remember what happened in Lystra, there hadn't been a huge response to the gospel. Maybe just one young man had come to Christ. Remember, that was the place where the missionaries had prayed for a crippled man. And that man had been miraculously healed, and that healing had incited the local residents of the town to want to sacrifice to Paul and to Barnabas at that time 
being pagans as they were, those, those residents, they thought that these men were gods who had come down to earth in the form of men. Paul, you remember, pleaded with them that they were just men, just like them, sinners who need the Saviour. It was difficult, to say the least, to shake the locals from that deeply rooted paganism. It always is. And so it was there at Lystra that the Jews began a campaign of slander against Paul. And that led led to him being stoned, being dragged out of the city, left for dead outside the city. You could say it wasn't the most successful mission field that Paul had ever been on. An upsurge of paganism, a terrible beating. There wasn't much good to remember about Lystra, except that at Lystra and Darba, the two twin towns, a young man had come to know the Lord Jesus. And his name was Timothy. And his mother was a convert as well, a Jewess. How encouraging is it that five years later, when Paul, accompanied now by Silas, returns to that area, they find young Timothy still there, still part of the church, still a disciple of the Lord Jesus, Presumably, he has matured greatly in the faith, for Paul now wants to co-opt him into the Lord's work among the Gentiles. I wonder, was Paul looking for someone to replace John Mark, who had been in his, his assistant in the first trip to Cyprus and had turned back from the work when things became tough? Timothy was a convert from Paul's first missionary journey. But let's look for a moment at his character. It tells us in Acts chapter 16 that when Paul came to Derbe and Lystra, behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman which was a Jewess, and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Now, what was this young man, Timothy, like? Well, we know he was young. Um, John Stott puts his age at around his mid-thirties. Afraid that his youth might be a hindrance to him, Paul reminds him not to be carried away by the lusts of youth. If you turn with me for a moment back to Second Timothy, remember I told you to keep a finger or keep your bookmark in the epistles to Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22. And you'll see there this demonstrated. For Paul writing to him says, flee also youthful lusts, 
but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. Don't get carried away with youthful lusts. I think Timothy might have been shy as well. Could have been of a a nervous disposition. For when Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he urges that church to treat Timothy when he comes to them gently and with respect. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6, where we learn that uh, he had to stir up the gift of God that he had been given. And then in verse 7, Paul goes on, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear. I wonder how that's connected with the gift that he had been given. Paul's obviously talking in verse 7, about, verse 6 rather, about his ordination. The time when he was placed into the ministry through the laying on of hands. And yet now he's having to say, don't be afraid. God has not given us the spirit of fear. This fear was connected some way with his call to ministry. So he could have been shy and retiring and by nature fearful. God has not given him the spirit of fear. It's in the context of ministry in the local church. Perhaps a contributing factor to Timothy's shyness and his timidity is his poor health. He's not a robust figure like Paul. Paul seems to be beaten and battered everywhere he goes. In fact, the apostle has to remind him to always be considerate of his physical well-being when he reminds him not to strictly confine his fluid intake to water, but to take a little wine for thy stomach's sake in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 23, that oft-quoted verse. So, Timothy's young, and he's shy, and he's nervous, and he's frail, and he's not great in the best of health. Why on earth, you must ask yourself, why is it that Paul would want a man like that to be his companion on an arduous missionary trip that not only was difficult in the towns when they were preaching where they would be stoned where they would be reviled and humiliated and thrown into jail but between towns for example from Philippi to Thessalonica where they had to walk for a hundred solid miles to carry the gospel why would Paul want a man to come with him who is inexperienced and nervous and shy and frail and young and sick. 
Because in verse 3 it says, him would Paul have to go with him. I can see several reasons. I think one of them would be because of his upbringing. Here's an encouragement to those of you who are mothers and, like me, grandparents. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and in thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that is in thee also. For parents and grandparents, it's a great challenge, isn't it? A great challenge. During the week that's gone by, we had our young grandson staying with us, Jude. And um, it's always great fun when grandchildren stay. Before he goes to bed, we have to read him a Bible story. And then he says, we have to pray. It's only five. We have to pray. Will I pray, Jude, or will you? You pray, Granda. What I will pray about. Great to see young children sitting at the, the knee of their parents and their grandparents, learning that before they go to bed at night, they must read the scriptures and pray. One of his Bible lessons last week was about helping others. Who are you going to help, Jude, said his daddy. I'm going to help Grandpa Bob. What are you going to do to get him to help him? Going to get him a new pair of glasses? <laughs> he has more insight than he actually... These are a pound out of the pound shop. And I'm going to help Granny Jeanette. What are you going to help her with? I'm going to make her a cup of coffee and try and get her to relax. See, children have great insight. Here was a young man who from his mother's knee had learned of her faith. From his parents and from his grandparents. His upbringing was a great asset to him in the Lord's work. Because of his upbringing, because of his reputation, if you look at Acts chapter 16 again, you'll see that he was well spoken of, well reported of, verse 2, by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. He had a good reputation among the people who met in his local church. People will remember him. People thought highly of him. Wonder how they'll remember you and me, days that lie ahead. During the early days of the Salvation Army, William Booth and his associates were bitterly attacked in the press by religious leaders and government leaders alike. One day his son, Bramwell, showed Booth a newspaper with a, an attack on him, a personal attack, and 
William Booth replied, 50 years now, it will matter in little indeed how these people treat us. What will matter a great deal is how we did the work of God. How will people remember me, speak about me and you? Because of his upbringing, because of his reputation, because he was a willing student, he had a very good teacher. He benefited greatly from his time with Paul. He would have learned Christian doctrine. He would have learned Christian ethics. He would have learned Paul's mission strategy. He would have learned practical ministry. He'd had a thorough ministerial training. Look at 2 Timothy 3 and verse 10. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came to me at Antioch, at at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. He'd learnt from Paul his full doctrine. He had theological education. Practical application of that. He'd learnt missiology, my manner of life and purpose. It's all there. He was a willing student. And more important than his upbringing and his reputation and his willingness to learn was his genuine faith in the Lord. Second Timothy 1 and verse 5 again talks about how when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you. That must be the most important reason of all. He had faith in God. Genuine faith. Real faith. Not some kind of fuzzy belief. I'm always amazed at the number of people who, having lost a loved one, tell me that, you know, they believed in God. Some kind of a generic God. Some kind of a God who's obviously like a big kindly grandfather who overlooks all our wrongdoings and pats us on the head and tells us everything's fine and lets us into heaven even though we have never repented of our sins. That's the kind of God they believe in. They've no idea. Timothy had a genuine faith. Paul specifically says that in the saving work of Christ for sinners. He chose him because of his upbringing, because of his reputation, because he was a willing student, because he had a genuine saving faith in Christ. But there's another reason, and that was because of the relationship between the two men. Paul was very fond of the younger man. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 4, 
We learned there that Paul greatly longed to see him, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears. What had caused him grief? Whatever it was, Paul longed to be there for him. He calls him in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18, my true son in the faith. Let's go back to that just for a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 4. Or verse 2. On to Timothy, my own son in the faith. Grace mercy and peace from God our Father, Jesus Christ our Lord. First Timothy 1 and verse 18. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy. The statement actually tells us a lot about Timothy. Paul regards him very highly, doesn't he? Uh, a true son. The word true there is the word how do you say the word gyne in Greek? Do you know the word gyne? That is used for women going to the hospital for to see somebody. Well, that's the, that's the word that's used here of the word, uh, the Greek word for true son. It's like a birth son is what's really meant. A birth son. It's used in a family situation to describe a natural born son as opposed to an adopted son. Paul very much regarded Timothy as his own spiritual offspring, as his convert. And for Timothy, whose mixed parentage would have made his hearers suspicious, that statement would have made him would have made him comfortable. It was an endorsement. It was an approbation. And throughout most of his life and his later ministry, Paul worked alongside Paul, worked by his side, sorting out problems in churches, carrying letters of encouragement and exhortation, going to Jerusalem with Paul, with the the offerings for the widows there. A strange choice. But think of his character. Think of his upbringing and his reputation, his willingness to learn, his genuine, true, saving faith in Christ and the bond that there existed between him and Paul. Is it any wonder Paul chose this weak vessel to be part of his missionary team? And God always uses weak things to confound the mighty. Lastly, because time is gone, I want you to see his commissioning, his very strange commissioning. Paul wanted him to go with him. So look at verse 3. Him would Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father 
was a Greek. Now, Timothy had a standard ordination service. As we've already seen in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 16, his unique call by God has been regularly affirmed by the church to serve the Lord as a pastor. He had been subjected to the laying on of hands. The pattern for ordination and commissioning in the first church, in the early church, and in the church from that day to this. It has been right down the centuries ever since. But yet in Timothy's case, there's an extra strange commissioning indeed. A very strange preparation. Now if you think over the past few studies in Acts, we have been learning from Acts 13 right through to Acts 15 that there was a war for truth going on in the early church. There were some Jewish-born Christians who thought mistakenly, in order to be a Christian, a convert needs to become a Jew. And that would involve circumcision and keeping the law. And Paul had been vehemently opposed to this. Paul's argument right throughout this, this whole dispute is that salvation is by grace through faith alone. In Christ alone, without any works, even religious works. And of course, this massive council, this great council of the church has been held to settle the issue in chapter 15. And the council has reached this momentous decision that no one needs to become a Jew to follow Jesus. For they should simply be aware of the feelings of the Jews. That's all. They don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to be enslaved to the law. But they should be very careful that they don't defend those Christians who have come from a Jewish background. As we learned when we looked at that chapter, the Gentile Christians, the true believers in the Lord Jesus, were jubilant. They rejoiced when they received the ruling of the council, for a great burden had been lifted off them, the weight of the law. Yet, in a move that seems inexplicable, when Paul decided that Timothy is going to be part of the missionary party, he circumcised him. Why? Acts 16 and verse 3. Paul wanted him to go with him. He took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters. For they knew all that his father was a Greek. So we see in verse 3 that the reason he circumcised him was because of the Jews who knew that his father was a Greek. But why? Surely didn't circumcise any other Gentile Christians whose fathers were Greeks. In fact, Paul has spent three chapters arguing that you don't have to do that, and he's won the case. Why is he doing it now? Actually, the answer is in verse 4. As they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep. 
that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. Let's go back for a moment to verse 15, chapter 15, and read the decree. Right. Verse 28 in Acts chapter 15. It seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from threats, from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves ye shall do well. That's the decree. It has been delivered. Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. They just need to be mindful of the traditions of Jewish Christians. It's a specific task. And it's a task which has now been given to Paul and Silas and Timothy. In verse 4, Paul is going to take Timothy with him to talk about this decree. They've got this specific task. So when he circumcises Timothy, it's not for salvation. Timothy has already been saved five years. He's already been educated in the gospel. He's already been part of the local church. He's already highly commended by the local Christians. But he's now going to go around the churches delivering the decree to persuade the local churches that circumcision doesn't save, that becoming a Jew doesn't save. Timothy is going to be a walking, talking, visual aid illustrating the Jerusalem decree. He's been saved before he was circumcised, and yet he has gone to very extreme lengths not to offend Jewish Christians. Do you see that? Timothy is the perfect embodiment of what the Council of Jerusalem has decreed. He doesn't need to be circumcised to be saved. That's the message. But the message to the Gentiles then is don't go out of your way to offend other brethren. Because of his work, because of his words, the local churches were strengthened in the faith. And new disciples were made. And more people followed Christ and joined the church. And Timothy turned out to be a good choice. Timothy was a fervent witness. Timothy had at some time been imprisoned for his faith. And Timothy gets a warning from Paul not to be ashamed of the gospel. And he must have paid attention to that, for in Hebrews 12 and 23 we're told that he has been set free from his imprisonment. Timothy, his conversion and his character 
and his unique and strange commissioning for the work of God. Next time, God willing, we'll move on in the chapter and we'll look at this very unusual event that we've come to call the Macedonian call.